Hey gang, Sean Zock here. We are breaking down the final round of the 1996 Masters today. But first, I want to remind you that Golf Magazine and Michelob Ultra have partnered to raise money for COVID-19 relief through our campaigns Playing Through and Ultra Indoor Open. All you need to do is share a video or a photo of you performing your best at-home golf activity. you got to use both hashtags, Playing Through and Ultra Indoor Open. Golf Magazine and Michelob Ultra will each donate a dollar to the United Way Fund for every single post. These posts will end up adding to the charity fund and they're going to help people affected deeply by the coronavirus. That's hashtag playing through and hashtag ultra indoor open. Both hashtags. Do it for me and do it for a pot unlike any other. I appreciate it. The year is 1996. Today is April 14th and Greg Norman has been leading the Masters all week. He opened with a 63 on Thursday. He's been waltzing his way around the course to avenge all those second place finishes that came before. All of that will be undone quickly and painfully in one of the greatest collapses in golf history. But for now, Greg Norman leads. Join us as we dive into the final round of the 1996 Masters. Nineteen ninety six. Joining me on the show today is Nick Faldo worshiper Luke Curtinine and my friend in podcasting, Dylan DeChair. Gentlemen, we were all quite young in April of ninety six. I was just two years old, which means Dylan was three and Luke was like seven or eight. The Dallas Cowboys are Super Bowl champions. And two months ago, which famous golf movie was released? Oh, was this the year of Tin Cup? The greatest golf movie ever. This was the year of Tin Cup, but it was also the year of Happy Gilmore. Just tap it in. Give it a little tappy. Tap, tap, tap a root. So wait, those both came out in the same year? How did I not know that? Happy Gilmore came out in February of 96, and Tin Cup came out in August of 96. Just about a year for golf movies that still hasn't been matched. I can't tell if the director of Tin Cup would be happy that Happy Gilmore came out or upset at the success of another golf movie coming out while he was probably finishing production of it. I saw a bunch of side-by-sides the other day on uh, two of the exact same movie that were made in the same year. Mm. You know, it was like no strings attached and <laughs> yeah, friends whatever, with friends with benefits. Yeah, how they like just came out at the same time and they're the exact same movie. Obviously, Tin Cup and Happy Gilmore are, are different, but like... If you take a non-golf fan, you'd probably be like, oh yeah, those two golf movies. Yeah, they're the same. They just came out in the exact same year. Um, well, this this rewatch was three hours long. It's a little bit like a golf movie. And there's only two characters. And one of them is Greg Norman. He is the number one player in the world by a pretty big margin. Apologize to Duffy Waldorf. <laughs> he is 41 years old. He just shot 63 on Thursday. Uh, That is the best first round in Masters history. More than 10 shots, better than the field average. He has won two Open Championships. He has seven career top tens at Augusta National. Basically the bridesmaid of ANGC history. We have Nick Faldo, number nine in the world. He's 38 years old. He's dating a girl who is 21 years old. Faldo is currently working through a messy divorce. He is a five-time major champion, a two-time Masters champion, We have Phil Mickelson, number 13 in the world, seven-time tour winner. He's just 26. We have Frank Nabilo, who's like playing the best golf of his life, and we have Duffy Waldorf, sponsored by Miller Lite. Those last three don't really matter, and I kind of just went through them quickly because it shows you it was really, really a two-horse race. The broadcast 
on Sunday, the intro sets a very interesting tone, I thought. You can't blame them, but Jim Nance is talking about how Jack Nicholas won in 86 and that part of his victory was because Greg Norman lost. And he lost it on 18. He had a chance to tie Nicholas and get to a playoff, but he didn't. Norman is always close, never getting it done. There's slow-mo of putting on the green jacket of Nicholas. He had those classic lines like, oh, there's life in the old bear yet. While the bear savored and celebrated his sixth green jacket, it lingers as a haunting memory for Greg Norman. And then they replay that putt and just talk about how awful it was in 86. Because... Norman's putt in 86 to tie was really bad. Everything about Norman coming down the stretch uh, on 18 was really bad that year. Now, before we dive into the uh, non-championship moments, I want to say Greg Norman, appearance-wise right now, he he's rocking this like kind of see-through straw black cowboy hat with the big shark emblem on the front. He kind of looks like an evil villain. I think, but the black pants kind of like stalking his way, not really smiling. He's kind of like a Bond villain trying to conquer Augusta National. And Luke, I imagine you probably felt the same. Absolutely. And then you have the daring warrior of the light and Nick Falder <laughs> just swooping in with his cape here to save the day for all of England. It was absolutely spot on, Sean. <laughs> well, let's, let's get into that. But first, the non-championship must-watch moments. You get to see the opening ceremony which is kind of cool. You have Gene Sarazen, Byron Nelson, and Sam Snead. I had no idea how tiny Gene Sarazen was. Or how old. <laughs> 94. He won the he won the 1935 Masters. <laughs> that is wild. And he's hitting tee shots in the same tournament as Tiger Woods. Yeah, that is crazy. Shout out to Sam Snead, though, who just goes all out on his ceremonial tee shot. Like, almost topples over after he, after he hits the ball. It's just like, <laughs> he was just going for it. Uh, Bernard Langer is wearing a white Wilson cowboy hat. That is probably the craziest version of Bernard Langer I've ever seen, and I would actually like you to come back. Langer at the Masters is kind of a style icon. There were those years where he would just wear, you know, one color. He'd be like dressed all in red or all in yellow. Yeah. You don't like the you don't like the white cowboy hat? No, I do. I, I mean I just think it's, you know, we should expect not only being fashion forward, but also kind of daring. All right. Uh any other non championship moments you guys really wanna people to, to go back and check out? Well, so there's two shout outs. I do, I do want to mention this is, I think, an all time good masters from an entertainment perspective, but an all time bad one from a fashion perspective. We have we have Noblo in three different shades of brown. And then we have Duffy Walt. Don't and then hate. Duffy Waldos hat seems to be signed by a bunch of people. I don't fully know. There's signatures all over it. Yeah. When he was playing number 13, there was a pretty good close up shot. And the only thing I could make out was it said, Waldorf world where birdies and eagles are plentiful. <laughs> I don't know what's weirder if someone else wrote that on his hat and he was having people sign his hat, which actually I do remember doing that like in sixth or seventh grade. People would kind of write notes in people's hats. They'd write on your cast if you broke your arm. But then it's it's probably even weirder if he did it himself. So <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I, I kind of love it if he wrote Waldorf World on, on his own hat. There's also a mention of McCarran uh, hitting a 360-yard drive on the 15th hole. And I went back and listened to it. It was not 316. The guy said 360-yard drive on the 15th hole. And I, it seems like the qu a questionable fact. 
maybe if they're on the up tees and somehow he got everything out of it and it hit a sprinkler head and then it catches the slope. But to be 140 out means I think you're beyond the walk paths <laughs> at that hole, which is really close. <laughs> My other thought was um, Phil Mickelson, who, you know, going into this, I had no real memory that Phil was in contention on Sunday in 96, but he first hits a, a bad chip on eight and then he follows it up with one of his like full, full mm-hmm. swing flop shots. The announcers are so amazed by this. And it had me thinking, like, did the full swing flop shot like even exist before this? Or did Phil kind of invent it? I mean, I think he kind of invented the the flop shot is its own thing, and then the Phil flop is a different thing. I think that makes sense to us right now. Yeah, right? and I think lob wedges too are still relatively new in the scheme of things. And I think they both came hand in hand. You know, I think this is sort of the advent of it. Well, Dave Pels gave the lob wedge initially to Tom Kite. And then Phil eventually got his hands on one and eventually works his way to a 64-degree wedge. Not quite in 96, but yeah, Phil is like the advent of Phil and the advent of wicked wedges are, like you said, they're kind of hand-in-hand. Definitely a sick flop shot on eight, though. And then, I mean, it was classic Phil. Like, bad chip, great chip, and then misses a little (laughs) slidey three-footer. How about Phil on 13? It's like an hour and 18 minutes in, and he's hitting from the pine straw, and the camera view is very similar to what he does in 2010, 14 years later. He's 229 yards away with an iron, and he hits the green. And there isn't even that much of a freak out, (laughs) which kind of makes you think, like, maybe Phil's shot in 2010 is as easy as he makes it sound. Especially that he was hitting iron from 229 and just kind of boldly taking on that green. Um, That was a sick shot. I mean, he hit a bunch of good shots. He just missed a bunch of little flippy putts and i don't know like that putt on the 11th hole like he kind of steps up to it the same way he always does he reads it his routine he has the same kind of putter and then he just misses it just a terrible and i was just thinking to myself that we've seen one of these kind of misses in majors down the stretch from phil mickelson like no matter what (laughs) age he is 25 35 45 this is like phil has this in him during during clutch time in the majors and uh, that's my first memory of phil Mickelson like that was his identity in my mind was that guy who's sort of like lurking and missing short crucial putts like one of my favorite clips is that in the background when Tiger has his big fist pump putt on 17 at Sawgrass yes (laughs) they cut to Phil who has like a four footer and then they like show the replay they show Tiger and then they cut to Phil again and he has like a five footer now because he's just like (laughs) hammered his second putt past the hole I don't know. That was Phil Mickelson in my mind growing up. And he's he seems like talent-wise, here's the young stud. He should be right up there, but just underperforming. Uh, at the hour and 23-minute mark, uh, you get a look from that same camera back towards the 13th tee. And this is an interesting look at Augusta National because you can see Augusta Country Club off in the distance. And there's a very like a new kind of paved path through the trees. I think it's a cart path and the like the foliage, the trees, the forest has not built up at this time in 1996. For anyone who doesn't understand how close Augusta Country Club is to Augusta National, was even closer to that tee box, that is where you should look right now because you can actually see a course through the trees that you cannot see today. All right, Luke, any other non-championship moments that you think people need to go back and see? 
1902 is the is the time stamp for the first time we see David Frost's golf swing. All time good oh golf swing there. Just nips a little wedge into the tenth hole and then hammers a drive on on the next. Oh, sorry, nips a wedge into the ninth hole and then hammers a drive on ten. Just such a good golf swing. And then we have a few Nick Price shots too. So this was a very good year for good golf swings. Yeah, can we talk about Nick Price's putt on seventeen? Nick Price's putt on seventeen. He's three over par. He drains a putt to go to two over par, and he does the full on like putter <laughs> drop, like he's just won the Masters. It's incredible. <laughs> And doesn't pick it up, does he? I don't know. He probably tells his caddy yeah. too. Before we dive into to what happens between Norman and Faldo, it's going to be a lot about us crowning Faldo. <laughs> we can tease it as such. But I need to set Luke back before we start and say that Nick Faldo's haircut absolutely sucks. It's horrendous. <laughs> it's long and mangy and like thick. And you just know he's sweating under this mop. Uh, it's really bad. And he's not wearing a hat. Honestly, it reminds me a lot of my kind of like current vibe, which is just <laughs> like I've been in quarantine for a month. Like, you know, showers are kind of happening periodically. Like, I don't think Faldo, you know, hopped in the shower before <laughs> his Sunday round at Augusta. He's just sort of got this like, yeah, I've been hanging out. I, maybe this is a British thing, though, Luke. Tell me. What? No, I, uh, I I firmly disagree with Sean, of course, on this, because, uh, you know, this is right about the time we're starting to see the plague that is golf hats just take over the PGA Tour. Everyone's wearing them. This is what I, this might be the last major anybody's won without wearing a hat. That's a Nick great Faldo's got question. a beautiful head of hair. He uh, he should show it off. And he did on a wonderful Masters Sunday. You know, nice, nice brown, nice, nice brown there in the Augusta sunshine. It probably well. is the last major one without a hat. It's at least the last Masters without a hat. Yeah. So it was a refreshing change. Yeah. Nice little plug. All right. So let's start on the eighth hole. Norman is at 12 under, Faldo's at 8 under, and for me, this is just proof that every single shot counts. Faldo lays up in the 8th hole, and Norman has a wood in his hands, he's in the middle of the fairway, and he goes after it, and he overcooks this gigantic hook, and it goes into the trees, and he gets him into trouble, so much trouble that he can't get on the green in 3, he comes up short of the green in 3, and like the eighth hole doesn't often matter at the Masters. It doesn't feel like it's pivotal, but especially if you have a lead, it's moments where you can extend that lead or little cracks form. And this was a little crack that formed. Faldo eventually is on the green and he makes birdie. Norman has to grind out a par. Oh, this was such an atrocious golf shot. I think you just did it kind of. And this is one of the all-time bad golf shots I remember. You made me do one of these podcasts for when Fred Couples won the Masters. And it reminded me of that Craig Parry pull, hook, smother, gross shot. On oh, the second yes. <laughs> this was so, so bad. He's in the middle of the fairway. And, it, and it's the first time we get a look at what's going to happen to Greg Norman, which is this horrible two-way miss. He's trying to hammer a draw down there, just comes straight over and hits this disgusting pull hook into the trees. He lost his balance. And oh, this was, this for one of the first swings of the day we got to see of Greg Norman, this was a true foreshadowing of what was to come. So we get a four-shot lead that started the day as a six-shot lead. It is now a three-shot lead. They move on to the ninth hole. Around 42 minutes in the broadcast, Nance and Venturi 
they're talking about Norman. He's in the middle of the fairway again. He's driving the ball like an absolute menace, which he was. He's one of the longest players his entire career. Crenshaw is in the booth, and he mentions it too. Ben, the one thing you guard against here is short. I got to believe if Norman wants to go to the back nine with a three-shot three lead, he has to be long. He, he must be long, Ken. You're right. He has only... 100 yards. You cannot go short on nine. You cannot land your pitch shot at the hole because it's going to suck back. What does Norman do? He lands his approach shot short. It rips off the false front. Crenshaw says, this course just absolutely tempts you. Norman has to make bogey. Faldo, middle of the fairway, two-putt par on nine. So that lead started at six. Now it's at two heading to the back nine. I'm curious at this point if you guys can – Remove your biases. Are we concerned about Greg Norman? Because the guy has played the front nine all week in not that great. He's basically now evened out his par on the front nine, and he's played the back nine in 11 under all week through three rounds. So I think at this point, if we were covering this event, we're probably still like, eh, you know, he's okay. He has a two-shot lead. Yeah, and he was playing so well coming into this. I mean, he hit 83% of his fairways and 78% of the greens uh, on the <laughs> tournament going into the back nine on Sunday. So the guy is like crazy. But that performance on the ninth hole really, like, he was just such a donut. He m- murders a drive down the <laughs> middle of the fairway. And then he just misses his wedge in the worst possible spot, short, right? It rolls down the hill slightly. Then he's too aggressive with the chip. Why are you being aggressive with this chip? Leaves it above the hole and misses the putt coming back. Faldo, meanwhile, the genius that he is, right down the middle, (laughs) right into the heart of the green, nearly holds the putt. And look, I was still, had I been, had I remembered it in the moment, I wouldn't have thought Norman... Would he would have ended up winning in my mind still, but yeah, uh, that's what I was curious about. Like Dylan, do you think that he's in a better place? I'll tell you what, the moment that it was over, okay, is on ten. Norman just yanks his approach shot, gets lucky that it kind of hangs in there, and then they flash up these masters facts about Norman, and they say he would be the oldest player to win his first masters and the guy that had played the most masters before his first. And it was just like the ultimate jinx because there's no chance after that. He's still got a two shot lead, but this is where I wrote down of the two people. One of them is hitting all their spots and the other is missing their spots. Like the approach on eight, the approach on nine, the approach on 10, one person is putting it where they want to. And the other person is putting it just a little bit off. Like, the approach on 9 sucks off the green. It's not like he shanked it to the left or the right. The approach on 10 gets caught up in the curtain kind of on the left side of 10. It's not like he's hooking it like he has in recent years. Uh, like, sure, the guy's that's... just barely missing, but that's what happens at Augusta National. It, just, it looks like a lack of feel because he's he's just lost his touch, like around the greens especially from, I don't know, from here on out, his putts are either well like much too aggressive or just looks so timid. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it's true for most of his shots around the green, either way too much or just babying it. You also, it's an interesting case study in all the weird ways that pressure affects you too, because his second shot into the 10th hole, his alignment on, on just over the ball was really weird. Like his, uh, his club face was sort of aiming slightly to the left of the pin, which was tucked left of the green. 
Um, and his feet were sort mm-hmm. of aimed about 10 feet to the right of the hole. So he's trying to hit a draw, but he's aiming far too left if he's going to hit a draw into that tucked pin. And he ends up coming over it slightly and missing short side. Just, I think uh, he obviously doesn't know he's doing that, but it's just his brain is just so scrambled, I think. Yeah, for me, this is just a definition of how easy the course can play and how difficult it can play at exactly the same time. Like, Faldo is not hitting it tight. You know, he's just kind of hitting his spots. So he makes par. Norman makes bogey. It's now a one-shot lead. It's like the 58-minute mark. Costas goes on. He's on the 10th hole. He says, oh, to know what's going on in that mind. Greg Norman has now made uh, four pars and four bogeys in his last eight holes. Faldo said afterward that this is when he knew that he had a chance. Meanwhile, Phil Mickelson misses that that easy birdie putt on eleven. Like Dylan mentioned earlier, he's five back. Everyone is basically five back. Nomolo, Scott Hoke, Duffy Waldorf. Moving on to 11, Faldo sticks it to 15 feet. Luke, this one probably got you all hot and bothered because this is basically the same approach shot that he had when he won the Masters in 89. He hits it to the same spot, like 20 feet short of the hole. Norman hits it 20 feet right of the hole. Faldo, two putts, and Norman absolutely burns the edge he makes a great drive a great approach and what i think is a great putt that just doesn't fall i know i said it was already over but in fairness if this putt had gone in it obviously changes everything um everything because yeah he hammers it a little bit but i mean come on i think what probably did it was they they just flashed up the ed sneed graphic 1979 largest master's lead ever blown and you're all about the Masters broadcast, Jinx. <laughs> here comes uh, here comes Norman. Oh. Taking 90 seconds to then, you know, grind over a three-footer. Three, three that he bogeys in a row for third-round leader Greg Norman. The lead, which started at the beginning of the day at six, is down now to a tie. And this was a theme. These guys take a long time over some of these big shots. Faldo, too. Yeah, but Greg Norman was the real offender here. And I think on the 11th hole, um, you know, it was, it was really when I was looking at Faldo, he hammers that drive down the middle, hits that draw just short, just under the hole into the green. And I just thought, this guy doesn't even look like he's playing golf. He looks like he's just like throwing darts at a board. I mean, he it really is just going from spot to spot to spot with such tactical mm-hmm. precision. And it's really not something we see done in golf very often at all, especially nowadays when people are bombing well, and gouging. It's I, a I think part gouge. of the reason for that is that we don't often understand the the places to hit and the places to miss quite like we do when we watch the masters like the tpc harding park is going to host the pga hopefully in august right i don't know the places that are they're they're always aiming for that the caddy is actually pointing players towards but at the masters we've seen it so many times we know that damn golf course i've never played it but i know it you know i know where faldo is trying to hit and he's been hitting all of those spots we just we just know it so well it's true when you Um, yeah when you see someone hit it 18 feet left of the pin on number 12 on Sunday, you know, like, oh man, that was just that's spot on. Like, that's exactly <laughs> yeah, what he's exactly. trying to do. I'm glad you brought up 12 because that's where we're going. Uh, I'm thinking at this point, having watched a lot of these masters, right? We were having just watched 2016 with Jordan Spieth. Uh, Spieth left the 11th green with a one shot lead. 
and Norman now leads leaves the 11th green with a zero-shot lead. But Greg Norman's the number one player in the world, guys. I know he has a crappy history here at this course of finishing the deal, but if anyone can rebound, it has to be the best player in the world. I'm trying to just like drum some life into the fact that Greg Norman on Thursday would have loved to be tied for the lead entering the 12th hole on Sunday. But my question is for you guys, can you imagine beginning the day with a six-shot lead, giving all of it up, and then having to play the 12th hole? No, I mean, I don't know if there's a, a psychological term for this, but my sense is that in there, if, if there's a situation where there are two people and one person is panicking and freaking <laughs> out, I think there are times when that second person gets kind of extra calm, takes control of the yeah. situation. Sometimes mm-hmm. these two people could be working together. In this case, obviously, <laughs> they'd be opponents. But Faldo, once again, hits it just over the right side of that bunker on 12. And then Norman has to step up behind him. It seems like he probably panics and aims dead at the pin, mm-hmm. doesn't quite hit his shot, and incredibly hits it in that water. Oh, my God. Good-looking shot. It's heading at the flag. Is it the right number? So Bobby Clampett is the broadcaster on 12. He loves it in the air. And Norman is kind of posing over it. Like he's staring it down. And the ball lands about probably two paces short of staying up, which is hard to tell just how close it got. But it rolls back into the creek. The bottom line here is that if you are looking from the hole, if you're looking from the tee box and your ball hits land to the right of the hole on Sunday, you're in big, big trouble. Like, have you ever seen anyone land to the right of the hole and stay dry? Fred Couples landed short in yeah. the hole, right? He wasn't quite as no. far right. Okay, then no. Like no it just no, it just be- doesn't happen. That's that, that's a miss. It doesn't matter if, if you were going at right of the flag. It's still a miss. So Norman, is he has to drop. He has to hit on. He ends up making a double bogey, which is five straight fives. From the 8th hole through the 12th, five fives. The direction of the miss is also worth noting here too, because he just, you know he missed it left on the 10th hole. He misses it right on the 9th hole. He missed it. He had the horrible shot on the 8th hole left. And then he, he blocked this one to the right. So he is missing. He's hitting push cuts and pull draws. Like this, that is just absolutely and he's standing over the golf ball for so long like there must be serious demons going on because he's just at a dress i mean on youtube you can do the forward arrow thing where it skips you ahead five seconds i'm telling you you could do this like four or five times over some (laughs) of uh once he's already at a dress because he just sits there for so long yeah one of my favorite parts about that is that it kind of asks the broadcasters to say stuff and uh, now Faldo has made his par and so Norman has a two-shot deficit but Bobby Clampett is just kind of riffing off the cuff he points out that amen means so be it amen means so be it and when you come here and make some mistakes like Norman has you have to forget what's behind and look ahead. As opposed to the real meaning of Amen Corner, which is like, thank God that's over. <laughs> like, we made yeah. it. Uh, different vibe. But then Venturi, 
at like the hour and 23 minute mark, he's going on and on about Norman. <laughs> and this is a really bad moment, but as Norman's standing over his tee shot on 13, there's a bird that freaks out, just tweets like crazy. Remember what got him to Sunday. You're right. Birdie at the worst. Oh, God, I forgot about that. I was thinking at that same moment as Norman walked off 12, started to play 13, just how ridiculous that black mesh cowboy hat was starting to look. (laughs) He's a Bond villain. You can pull one thing off when everything is smooth and you're winning the Masters and you're putting up the good fight, but my God. It starts to look worse. Um, so, So Norman sprays his tee shot on 13 then not totally sprays but just hits it long and doesn't get it to turn over so he's in the the pine straw to the right of the fairway faldo doesn't hit a phenomenal drive he kind of hits on the same line but he hits it short and notably is in the fairway venturi starts talking about what norman is going through and this is why he was such an asset to the masters broadcast because he lost the masters multiple times like Norman has done. He's talking about what Norman is, you know, thinking. And he says, it's just so hard to pull yourself back. I mean, Venturi blew a six shot lead on the final 10 holes of the masters, not the final 18. Uh, but th- that's why he was just like, so, so good. And he speaks up. He always spoke up in the broadcast. Norman lays up on 13 and this is where actually uh, Venturi kind of screws up. Because Faldo is kind of analyzing what he wants to do on 13. And they make a big deal about it, and it's taking forever, but he grabs uh, a fairway wood. And Crenshaw has also been on the broadcast all day, which is a nice little facet since he missed the cut. He says if there's one, if there's one guy who trusts his swing, it's this guy. But then Faldo backs off twice. The crowd is groaning. Faldo says to his caddy, too much of an angle which I'm not quite sure what that means. Dylan, do you have an idea of what that means? Too much of an angle for a wood? Yeah, I mean, not exactly, except that I think he was worried about the ball being above his feet, which then kind of contrasts with the green, which is deeper on the left, but the pin is over on the right. So I think there's a lot going on. What he ends up doing is pulling long iron and then hitting it at the left side of the green where you don't have to carry it as far. And then, you know, there's just more room to land the ball. Maybe you're not going to get in tight for Eagle, but he doesn't need to. So we talked about this a bit in his book, um, too. Where <laughs> How he, many times have you read the he, book? He's, <laughs> so he's basically, he's between like a fairway wood and a two iron. Um, it was a little too, you know, a fairway wood was a little too much club and a two iron was maybe not enough. Uh, he was going to go with the fairway wood, but because of the angle of the lie, he was worried that if he clubbed up, that there would just be too much shape on the ball and it would just start missing. So bring like long left into play. So he kind of backs off twice, pulls the two on and just tries to smoke it, which is not what Faldo usually used to do. Like when he was nervous, he, he wouldn't go hard. He'd go softer. Um, but this was such I was struck shot. by actually his golf swing, just how smooth it is. Um, yeah, it's awesome. Norman's is pretty violent and powerful even you know he's 41 years old now he's not a spring chicken but it was a real contrast there and Faldo's felt like a little bit more of a throwback that he's a big guy Faldo so he can get away with having that nice easy power Um, but definitely a different swing than Norman's felt much more modern yeah it was a two iron for Faldo 
which just uh i just wish that hole could could have long irons approach the green today as opposed to eight irons that tiger woods has hit into it uh up on the 16th my boy frank navalo makes birdie to reach three back momentarily three back which is not worth anything but he has a he has a phenomenal five o'clock shadow like perfect beard it's a pretty easy two-putt birdie for Feldo. Norman makes a long birdie putt, probably a 20-foot birdie putt, and we get a roar. What a key putt. What a read. What a good call, Ben. That, is, that may be the one he needed. Which is important because it's our first roar, I think, all day. I didn't realize when I was watching how quiet this Masters final round was because no one's making anything that is worthy of a roar. Like even Faldo is plodding along, really making two putt birdies at the par fives and kind of making two putt pars everywhere else. So Faldo's at 10 under Norman's at eight under two shot difference. Norman hits a great drive on 14, but then an awful approach to like 70 feet. He makes a great two putt from there. Faldo misses the fairway, but hits the green and is still plenty far away. Phil Mickelson makes an eagle on 15 to get to four back, which is, that's, that's it. Like that's as close as he's going to get, um, on to 15, both players rip big drives over to the left side of the fairway. Faldo goes a little bit long and over the backside of the green so he's over into again uh if you're gonna miss the 15th green that is the miss like he doesn't hit the green but he's just over the back that's where a bunch of people end up when they're approaching that hole it's not short it's not long right it's not short left it's just a little long left that's that's being clinical norman lands his approach on 15 short and it somehow hangs up on the bank he's not dead yet that's the thing like yeah, the frequent miss is long, but if you could pick it, you would just be on that front bank. It's just that you would never, ever <laughs> want to take the risk that it's going to do what Sergio Garcia did, you know, six times a couple of years ago. And somehow, mercifully, Norman's ball stayed up. And then he had another chance to get right back in this golf tournament. He makes the most incredible chip shot. It's tracking the entire way. Wonderful touch. It's the first time I've seen him show emotion all day, right? Falls to his knees, rolls over onto his back. One of the all-time reactions to a shot that doesn't go in. It's not an eagle. It's a tap-in birdie. And Faldo very calmly matches him with a solid up and down for his bird. I mean, Norman just needs one at this point. You know, he just needs a break. Like that's, I, th- I really think if that chip goes in, it's maybe a different story. Yeah. If he gets a kick on 13. Yeah, because he's playing first. Yeah, exactly. Like the crowd would have lost it if he chipped in for Eagle. And who knows if Faldo is able to get up and down with the crowd going crazy. I don't know. We're kind of picking uh, at some straws there, but that's just kind of how it goes. You can't pick up strokes on someone who's playing like Faldo without hitting a phenomenal shot. We move on to 16, still a two-shot differential. Faldo hits the middle of the green. He's probably got like 30 feet for his birdie putt. Dylan, tell me what Norman does on 16. So he's coming off this nice birdie. You know, he cleaned up his three-footer in a good way, but we've seen 
Luke has already mentioned on 10, his alignment seems a little off. He's trying to hit a draw, but you know he's lined up too far left to do it. So here, I assume he's trying to hit another little draw, catch that slope, and funnel it down close to the hole. Instead, he hits it. It must start off on some kind of decent line because he watches it, and for a second, he's like, all right, come on. And then we see the ball <laughs> yeah. land, and this thing is 20 yards short of where it should have landed. <laughs> it's 20 yards left of where it should have landed. It falls in the pond in a place that I've never seen a golf ball land in exactly. the pond short on number 16. And he was only two shots down at this point. So there's he's very much in the golf tournament still. But to have that miss there turned like a performance where, yeah, he gave away a big lead, but he had some glimmering moments. He made a couple birdies coming home into how we think of it today, which is just utter disaster. I would love to get on some scuba gear and go under the water at 16 and just to see the golf balls that land in that area. Now, Greg Norman was playing a max fly at the time, but if he was playing a modern day golf ball, he would probably be playing a pro V one or something like that. A really nice premium golf ball. And I'm sure that there are no nice premium golf balls where he hit it to meaning only amateurs hit the ball to the water there. No one on like the pro circuit is missing that far left of the hole. On 16, like that, it's that bad of a shot. Uh, when it splashes, there's a fan that you can hear actually kind of go, woo hoo hoo. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if everyone was cheering for Faldo, but I don't think people were really cheering against. Norman. That was Luke's uncle. <laughs> yeah, I mean that shot too. Again, like it's the double, it's the, it's the two-way miss coming to haunt him. You know, like that bailout shot that he hit to twelve would have been fine on this hole, but that's not what's happening to him. He's not missing in one direction; he's missing in two. That pulled chunk comes, and meanwhile, Faldo's just dagger into the middle of the green. I mean, this it really is worth reiterating again how good mm-hmm. he was at hitting all his spots. I mean, this is like where Tiger Woods learned to play Augusta yeah. National. Likely because he found that was hitting it in exactly the perfect spot. He hits a draw from the middle of the green to just below the hole on one of the most intimidating shots when in the tournament still sort of up in the air. So it's it was he was so good. And I know that it's a European thing that people say, oh, you know, well, we shouldn't discount Faldo's amazing performance because of Norman's collapse, because that's all Americans focus on. But I really think we shouldn't discount Faldo's amazing performance because no, of Norman's collapse because it was so It's true. Good. At this point, Vern says... This one, candidly, might go down as one of the great final round collapses in major tournament history. But, you know, <laughs> Greg Norman's actually going to end up finishing, I think, solo second. So it's not like uh, anyone else was going to be beating Nick Faldo at this point. Uh, it is amazing how a six-shot lead can be erased in 12 holes and then the masters is all of a sudden unwinnable. Like Greg Norman cannot win through 15 and a half holes. Yeah. He makes, he makes another double bogey at this point, guys, who is more surprised is Nick Faldo more surprised that he has a four shot lead or is Greg Norman more surprised that he has a four shot deficit. Both of those guys starting, uh, 10 strokes differently. I just wouldn't use the word surprise for whatever Norman was going through. So I would have to say that (laughs) Faldo is probably, surprised Norman doesn't look like he's processing much at this point he's sort of you know you can see instinct takes over he actually hits a great shot from where he drops it 
um, hits it in there pretty tight, makes a terrible putt, but whatever. I do want to note though, Norman on Sunday, so there are four par threes and four par fives at Augusta. He played the par fives in 17 strokes and he played the par threes in 17 strokes. <laughs> Jeez. That's an amazing statistic. You're going to have to tweet that out next week. Faldo on 17, he hits it to 12 feet. Flawless, as Sean McDonough would put it. Both players miss good birdie tries. So we move on to 18. This is when Luke probably got real excited because Nance is getting super poetic. It was 25 years ago today when a 13-year-old perfectionist named Nick Faldo discovered his calling. He stayed up past midnight on Easter Sunday in England watching the final round of the 1971 Masters. And in particular, he was watching Jack Nicklaus. He was so enthralled with the bear, even though Jack didn't win that particular tournament. So captivated was young Nick, he was taking his first golf lesson within a week. And now only Palmer and Nicholas will have more green jackets in their closet than Nick Faldo. And yeah, you know, I feel like it took a long old time for the commentators to come around to the fact that Faldo was going to win this thing. And Faldo's great crime is that he plays such, whenever he's winning and playing such amazing golf, he has this sort of knack for making it not look like amazing golf because it's just so consistent and plodding. And even when he hits good shots, he's kind of begging at it a little bit. But uh, finally, there's this sort of collective realization like, all right, this is Faldo's moment. This is actually going to happen. Norman is no longer the story here for this one hole. Give Faldo yeah. one hole to have Luckily, it was a long hole. They were so far behind the group in front of them that they did have a while to then focus in on Faldo because these guys had opened like like a two-hole gap. Um, but wait, Luke, for the non-Faldophiles who maybe haven't studied his career like you have, are there any modern equivalents that you would draw comparisons to from Faldo to today's game? Um, yeah, so... so for context, right, like Faldo's thing was he's a big guy, he's 6'4", he bulked up to, so he's strong, but he was not a long hitter because he didn't try to be a long hitter. He's very accurate. So he's sort of like a Matt Kuchar type. If Kuchar was slightly better at ball striking and slightly worse at putting, if that makes sense, you know? Kuchar's a consistent ball striker, um, but he's not like... An ex- he, he he doesn't really he's not as good at driving accuracy for instance as Faldo was like whereas he makes up for it by being a slightly better putter so they're definitely on the same end of the spectrum but uh but Faldo sort of does it slightly differently but in terms of like big athletic guy very consistent um and sort of maybe doesn't maximize his like power potential but gets around it anyway through sort of hard work and clever clever playing i think cooch is probably a decent uh decent example i like that um at at two hours and 35 minutes i love it ken venturi is kind of waxing poetically now he says the back nine at augusta national it doesn't seem that difficult but it is one of the most difficult in which to protect the lead which i think is uh, if you want if you watch a lot of the masters and you understand augusta national that makes a lot of sense like it feels like the entire back nine people are gunning for you if you have that lead. And it feels like those holes are just not as easy as they were on Thursday. I wrote down what Mr. Clinical Faldo has done. After making the birdie on eight, he goes fairway green, two putt par, fairway green, two putt par, fairway green, two putt par, green, two putt par, fairway green, two putt birdie, second cut, 
green, two putt par, fairway, just over the green, up and down birdie, green, two putt par, fairway green, two putt par, bunker green, one putt birdie. Like, so he doesn't miss a green. Yeah. Just on 15 where he went exactly. for it in two. Like but yeah. clinical, the definition of the term. And he is doing this as a car has completely exploded in the <laughs> same group as him under pressure. Like it's so, he is so good. It's amazing. As for Norman, it's a final round 78. Ken Venturi says, I feel so sorry. Norman gives Faldo a really long, like nice hug. Uh, Venturi says, if you look in the dictionary for the word class, you'll see a picture of Greg Norman. Nance agrees with him. According to SI, the game story, Faldo apologized during the hug to Norman for what had happened and that both players teared up. I think that that's incredible. Yeah, and I think it's also, you know, Greg Norman was a wonderful sportsman there, but let's not forget it was Faldo who went in for the hug and it was Faldo who apologized to Norman and was crying for Norman in victory and it was people didn't really like Faldo at the time but this was an amazing act of class from both of them uh, especially Faldo yeah <laughs> well it's a 67 for Faldo he did have a bogey on the front nine but he thought he needed a 66 to win they asked him about that prior to the round and that's what he said later on in the Butler Cab interview <clears throat> he says I genuinely feel sorry for Greg he describes the tournament super well it's a great interview Um, He says he kind of turned into playing match play strategy and just trying to hit the middle of the green on 12 and trying to, you know, not make mistakes. He can't stop saying how sorry he feels for Greg Norman. Crenshaw goes on to say how sorry he feels for Greg Norman. He says it during the, uh, the green jacket ceremony that he feels sorry for him. The whole thing is a funeral. I mean, he beat him by seven shots in the back nine. He absolutely dismantled the guy. He could have shot what, 72 and been in a playoff, but instead I think he had the low round of the day. I wonder how many players would admit how sorry they feel for someone. You know, when Rory just exploded in 2011 or when Spieth exploded in 2016, did Denny Willett or did Charles Schwartzel mention how sad they feel? I guess they weren't in the same group. This is a whole different ball game because Norman's 41. He's been there so many times before. In some ways, people want to see him win. I think the only real time that would be comparable, and it's obviously different, but when Tom Watson doesn't quite pull it off at Turnberry and, sure, you know, Stuart Sink ends up being the kind of feeling guilty <laughs> yeah. as the winner. Later on, Norman would tell reporters, I'll win here. I will. Something great is waiting for me down the line in golf. I don't know what it is, but I have to believe that. If I don't, hell... I might as well put my clubs away for good. That's dark. Before we move on to the Roberto DiVincenzo Award for what could have been, one final Nick Faldo factoid. He now has three top tens at the Masters. In his career, he has three top tens at the Masters. All victories. Every time he was in, finished in the top ten, he won, which is one of the most underrated stats I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, and people who dismiss Faldo like to point this out as a negative for some reason. I don't know. Apparently being clinical is a, is a, is a bad thing. But I do think <laughs> it's worth pointing out that the reason why Faldo's record looks like that, which is unique, I'll give you that, is because of the kind of golf he played on the back nine elicits certain reactions. I genuinely believe that. I really think that uh, Norman 
when you're when you're collapsing like Norman was, and you maybe have your playing partner chasing you, but who's also spraying the ball, that gives you a certain amount of security that Faldo simply wouldn't do because he was just hitting fairways, greens. He was not showing any emotion. He was being clinical. He's making these boring birdies, and I think that that elicits a lot of pressure on the people who are trying to beat him. Yeah, this this whole final round it really is quite similar. Uh, in in various ways on the back nine to the 2016 Masters with Spieth hitting his ball into the drink on 12 with a couple bogeys like in just short missed putts screwing him over. The Roberto DiVincenzo Award for what could have been, gentlemen, I really, I know Dylan mentioned this earlier, I think Norman's putt on 11. If it goes in, I mean, it looks like it's going in the entire way. If it goes in, he's back in the lead now. He has a one-shot lead. It changes the entire mood. He hits first on the 12th hole instead of second. Maybe he takes a more conservative line on 12 instead of trying to be aggressive. I think that is the moment that could have flipped this thing. Yeah, I mean, in terms of thinking about that flip on 12, the way Faldo is playing at that point reminded me a little bit of like when Molinari was in his real gamer mode. Um through about three and a quarter rounds at the Masters last year. But Tiger hung in there with patience and conservative play and waited for him to crack. Faldo never cracked, but Norman also helped him out by kind of freaking out, panicking, it seemed like. That's the thing, though, is that Lee Westwood did that in 2010. He hung back, and he didn't hit anything tight, and he made a bunch of pars, and didn't make any birdies, but then Phil Mickelson like ran away from him. It's like, I don't want to, I don't want us to just assume that playing kind of clinical the way that, that Faldo played and to hit your spots doesn't always lead to a victory here. Yeah. You, it it puts you in position for it to fall into your, into your hands. I, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I do think as far as this award goes, like, I honestly think like if Norman had one lucky break fall his way on that back nine, uh, he probably would have won it. Uh, I think he just needed one. He just needed that ball to stay out of the water on 12. Or he needed like, he needed that chip on 15 to go. Or he needed to, if he chipped yeah. in, or maybe he just gets up and down on 10, something like that is he was just desperate for it. And I think if he got it, it's just enough to hold and run with. He never gets any mojo going his way. I would None. I would still like to nominate uh, Mr. Phil Mickelson for this award because, you know, not that he had a bigger missed opportunity than Norman, obviously. But, you know, when he gets to the seventh hole, he's still just one shot back of Faldo. Uh, and he's he makes four bogeys the rest of the way. But, you know, he also eagles 15, makes birdie on 13. He has a bunch of good looks. Like on 11, he's got a short birdie putt. So, I don't know. He, yeah. It would have been so interesting if he hadn't missed a few shorties, you know, 8, 11, 12, and it was just a few shots closer to the lead. I don't know. I mean, if Faldo has to make par on 18, things are a little bit different. It's definitely interesting. This happens in golf all the time where you have the all the hindsight of the information. If you told Phil, hey, Phil, Greg Norman's going to end up at 7 under par. Like on, on the first tee, Phil would have been like, holy cow. I can shoot 68 and win this damn thing. Maybe he plays a little bit differently. Um, yeah, I mean, Phil's at seven under par through six holes. So if you tell him, hey, look, Norman's going to finish where you are right now, 
don't know. <laughs> He'd probably laugh. He's on my list too, Dylan, because it is funny to think about like an alternate scenario where Norman explodes, Faldo just doesn't make any putts and maybe misses a few, shoots 72, and Mickelson ends up making his putts and playing well and wins the green jacket out of nowhere. And suddenly he's this 25-year-old kid who's already won a major. We don't have those six years of Phil Mickelson. Will he win a major? He's never quite target. He can't handle the pressure. Like the course of narratives in golf looks completely different if, if Phil Mickelson triumphs here. Happens every year at the Masters. That is good enough for the 1996 Masters. Thanks for tuning in, guys. While I have you, if you haven't given us a five-star rating or a review, what are we even doing here? I'd love to keep this podcast kicking even throughout the summer, especially during uh, these lockdown times. But we need help from you guys, too. We've got one more Masters episode here. And then who knows after that? So tune back in next week for El Pato, the duck. Angel Cabrera, 2009. See you then.